Africa, rise and shine. Africa, tosa. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Neto Chimani. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at Basawa, donors pledge 500 million US dollars for troops in Africa's Sahel region, and North Korea condemns late US sanctions. In economics news, concerns over looming job cuts at South Africa's Evander Gold Mine, and in sports news, Orlando Pirates beat Chipper United to boost title hopes. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Security forces in the Democratic Republic of Congo have shot dead an anti-government protest in the capital, Kinshasa. Two other protesters were also injured. Churchgoers had planned to take part in marches against President Joseph Kabila following Sunday services. However, security forces surrounded churches and blocked roads to stop to stop them from going ahead. Officers reportedly used tear gas and live ammunition to disperse crowds in the city of Kisangani. Protesters are calling for Kabila to step down. Elections to replace him have been delayed and are currently set for December this year. The BBC's Mary Harper reports. The church has become the main opposition force to President Joseph Kabila, who was meant to step down when his mandate expired in 2016. After Sunday Mass, worshippers defied a government ban and gathered to protest against their president. The security forces responded with tear gas and live bullets. The authorities now say elections will be held in December this year. But the situation is becoming ever more fragile, with church-led protests and complex, seemingly intractable conflicts in the east and central regions. The Nigerian government has confirmed that 110 goals are missing after a Boko Haram school attack in the northeast. There had been confusion over the number of those with culture al together with other ministers met with parents and teachers in Dabchi in the northeast. Gadishu on Friday, the blast left at least 32 people dead and dozens of others injured. The special representative of the chairperson of the AU Commission says the incident is under investigation by both the government of Somalia and the AU mission in Somalia, Amisom. Two vehicles loaded with explosives detonated near the intelligence headquarters in the Somali presidential palace, the Villa Somalia. Al-Shabaab elements also started firing at innocent civilians. 
The leaders of France and Germany have appealed to Russian President Vladimir Putin to make the Syrian government honor a ceasefire demanded by the UN Security Council. The UN's demand comes as warplanes continue to pound the Syrian rebel enclave of eastern Ghouta near Damascus. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reports. The joint phone call by Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel to the Russian president urged Mr Putin to use his influence on the Syrians to stop all attacks on eastern Ghouta. How far such an appeal will resonate with the Russian leader is open to question, although the mass casualties of the past week undoubtedly shone an unwelcome spotlight on the human cost of Moscow's support for President Assad. In eastern Ghouta itself, airstrikes have continued, but at a much reduced level, although several more children have been killed. On the ground, there have been fierce clashes between rebel fighters and government forces, but not yet the all-out offensive that's been threatened. And finally, a court in Iraq has sentenced 15 Turkish women to death on charges of belonging to ISIS. The court says it was proven that the women had married ISIS members and provided them with logistical aid. Some had helped their husbands carry out attacks. Several other foreign women have already been sentenced to death on the same charges. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. International donors have pledged nearly half a billion dollars to support security operations in the Sahel at a conference in Brussels. The meetings were attended by the leaders of Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania and Niger, as well as EU leaders and representatives from the African Union and the UN. Jack Parrock reports. 32 of the world's most powerful leaders from Europe and with their counterparts from the Sahel region of Africa. And from the EU, the promise of double the money they've already put into a security mission launched in October 2017, meaning the total international donations come to near 6 billion rand. Federica Mogherini is the EU's foreign policy chief. The impact of the lack of security caused by the presence of criminal groups, traffickers in humans and drugs, and terrorist gangs in the region is felt as far away as Europe and even beyond, and that's why we wish to, and we must come together to respond to this challenge. The plan is to provide 5,000 troops to the area to boost security and train local forces to try to eradicate the numerous armed militant groups in the region, many considered terrorist organizations. The situation in Mali has heightened the need with almost daily attacks occurring. Two French soldiers were killed there earlier this week. The concern is that if the security situation worsens, people from Sahel countries may cause a fresh influx of migration into Europe, boarding dangerous smugglers' boats in Libya. 350,000 people are believed to have travelled through Niger on their way to Libya in 2017. Mohamedou Isufu is the president of Niger. To eradicate clandestine migration and its dramatic consequences, we have to promote sustainable development and therefore give perspectives of a future in situ to numerous young people who arrive in the labour market. 
Europe's additional security funding contributes to cash from Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and the US. France has been the most active in trying to take out jihadist groups in Sahel countries once under its colonial power. The EU continues to provide 115 billion rand of development support to improve the conditions of those living in Sahel countries, some of the poorest in the world. Jack Parrick, SABC News, Brussels. There are tensions on the Nile as Ethiopia is getting closer to finishing a huge new hydroelectric dam which will give it the ability to control the flow of the river. Egypt has always been the river's superpower but the sphere of influence appears to be turning with a rapidly growing and ambitious Ethiopia. A change of allegiances by Sudan and a failure to sort things out diplomatically. The BBC's Alistair Lathead visited Egypt to find out to find it is already facing a water shortage and is doing all it can to keep control of its river water. Well, it's half past six in the morning and the sun is just coming up over the Nile. Um, We're in a hot air balloon flying over Luxor. The Valley of the Kings is just on the other side of the mountain range I'm looking at at the moment and we're drifting not too far off the ground above all these beautiful and ancient temples The reason we've come here, of course, is to get an explanation as to why it is that Egypt is so opposed to this dam that Ethiopia is building so far upstream. Imagine this room with the colour. How was it? Every day, thousands of visitors come to the huge Karnak temple here in Luxor. There are impressive pillars, amazing hieroglyphic carvings. It's thousands of years of Egyptian wealth and power set in stone, a foundation of Egypt's proud national identity. According to Tayyab Garib, the director of the Karnak temples, the pharaohs used to worship the river as a god. Egypt, they said, was the gift of the Nile. They used the Nile for everything, for irrigation, for cultivated area and all the kind of transportation by the Nile at this time. So the Nile, it was very, very important for the ancient Egyptian, and still it's very important for the Egyptian right now. At Aswan, Egypt, on the Nile River, special ceremonies mark the start of work on the Aswan High Dam. Back in the 1960s, Egypt decided that building a dam was the best way to protect its own interests. The Aswan High Dam regulated the flooding of the Nile, generated power and allowed vast agricultural lands to be irrigated. This is an important moment for Nasser. It was a symbol of great pride, projecting power for revolutionary post-colonial Egypt. Wahhabi has been a fisherman on the Nile for 40 years. He said his family's livelihood depends on the river. He's heard about Ethiopia's dam in the Egyptian media, that they want to control the Nile and that its flow will be reduced. They say the water will get won't be affected, but only God knows what could happen. If they dam the river, there will be wars and fighting. And those fears are echoed in chaotic Cairo. Egypt relies on the Nile for almost all its water. But with a fast-growing population, the UN predicts water shortages by 2025. Egypt's water resources minister, Mohamed Abdelati, is angry about what Ethiopia's dam could do. I'm extremely angry because if the water that's coming to Egypt reduced by 2%, you know what what does this mean? Loss about 200,000 acres of land. One acre at least makes one family survive. 
a family in Egypt, the average family size is about five persons. So this means that about one million will be jobless. He says that means more migrants heading to Europe and more people to be recruited by terror groups. All Europe and uh, uh, Egypt is suffering from what is happening in Syria, in, in Libya, in other countries. So what if Egypt is added to these uh, countries? What will be happen? But so it is an international security issue. There's a lack of trust in Ethiopia after the way it approached the dam project. Ethiopia for the first time is combining both, you know, the physical power of being an upstream country that can actually control the Nile flow and the economic power of being able to construct a dam depending on its own domestic resources. Egyptian water expert, assistant professor Rawia Tafik, says Egypt has the right to be angry. The idea of a dam had been discussed, but Ethiopia started building without consultation in the middle of the Arab Spring. The downstream impact still hasn't been properly assessed, and filling the reservoir too quickly will reduce the river's flow. It's a manifestation that the power balance is changing in the region, economically, politically and strategically as well. Well, this is it. This is the place where the Nile finally reaches the end of its long journey. Just up there is the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the waves coming in here. This is salt water. You know, whatever Egypt says or does, this uh, Ethiopian dam is being built. It's not an idea or a plan. It's a thing. It can already control the flow of the Nile's waters. And I suppose Egypt's always been this country strong enough to be able to dominate those upstream. And that's now changing. War over water can be avoided through strong leadership and diplomacy. It could even become a model of how countries can learn to share great rivers. But for now, it's up to Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt to navigate tensions on the world's longest river. That report by the BBC's Alistair Lated. The United States has announced its largest package of sanctions yet against North Korea just as South Korea prepares for more talks with officials from Pyongyang. It is the latest diplomatic twist as the international community tries to persuade Kim Jong-un to give up his nuclear weapons. For many who live on the Korean peninsula, this geopolitical drama could have very personal consequences as the BBC's Laura Bicker reports. Pyeongchang has become a playground. Tunnels made of snow, slides of ice for children bundled up against the cold. Just a few months ago, some were worried South Korea would be at war. Now its Olympic Games have become a winter wonderland. But the hopes of many in this nation lie outside the sporting arenas. I had dinner with three generations of one family, whose lives could be changed by any diplomatic breakthrough. At the age of 17, Lee Myung-jae came from North Korea with his father to sell merchandise. Trapped in the South by war, it's now over 60 years since he's seen his hometown and his three sisters. My children don't know how I feel. My family from the North... Never leave my heart. I am always thinking about how I can help them, and I'm worried that they're going hungry. He feels that having athletes and cheerleaders from the north here in South Korea offer these divided countries a real chance. (laughs) 
I do feel that this time is different, even if politically we continue to fight and bicker. In the end, we are one people, so we must come together. But North Korea's nuclear weapons have made this division a global problem. The opening ceremony of the Games provided a chance for talks between the US and North Korea. Kim Jong-un's sister sat behind the US vice president in the stands, but a planned meeting did not go ahead. This time, the US envoy is the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump. North Korea is sending a controversial figure, one of its highest-ranking military generals, Kim Yong-chol, who's alleged to have masterminded the sinking of a South Korean Navy ship in 2010. 46 sailors were killed. It's bound to prompt protests and test the popularity of the president's approach to his neighbours. The Moon administration has already been criticised for doing too much to accommodate North Korea during the Games, especially by those in their 20s and 30s. The generation who've grown up in South Korea and helped this country recover from the effects of a devastating war are more aware of the dangers of having a neighbour with nuclear weapons. Lee's son is Lee Sang-gil. Watching the Olympics, I realised the North and South coming together in sports is a good thing. But for our generation, if North Korea gets rid of its nuclear weapons, I think unification could happen sooner. Both the father and son keep a picture of their sister and aunt in North Korea in the hope that one day they'll be able to cross the border, which sits only a few miles away. I keep a memo of my aunt's original address in North Korea and a photo of her in my phone. The best scenario is that unification would happen when my father is still alive and we all meet together as a family. That report by the BBC's Laura Bicker in Pyeongchang. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. More than 400 people have been killed in eastern Ghouta in Syria last week. The BBC's Martin Patience visited a refugee camp in neighboring Lebanon where Syrian families are desperate for news of their relatives trapped in the besieged suburb of Syria's capital, Damascus. The war in Syria has torn apart families. Families now find themselves in different countries and even on different continents. And here in this refugee camp in Lebanon, it's no different. If you could drive from here to eastern Ghouta, you would be there in an hour. But it's a different world. Whilst there's relative security here in eastern Ghouta, the bombardment is continuing. And families here are desperate to hear any news about their relatives, their loved ones, their families in eastern Rota, but it's incredibly difficult. So every day, people wake up here and they want to know 
if their mother, their father, their brother or sister, or even children, are still alive. One of those is Khalil, who's here with his wife and newborn baby. When was the last time you spoke to your family? I last spoke to my cousin three days ago. It was terrible. He told me that they were waiting to die. He asked me to forgive him if I never heard from him again. His little boy was killed. He was just three and a half. I have not heard from my cousin since. He plays me the last message he got from his cousin. They're destroying Ghouta, he says. Please pray for us. How, how do you cope with that? We spend all day trying to reach people on Ghouta. One of my friends is in the Civil Defense Force, the White Helmets. I managed to reach him two days ago. And he told me his center has been bombed and is now out of action. He told me they had run out of space to treat the wounded and that they had even run out of shrouds to bury the dead. Omaha runs a small shop. It's an Aladdin's cave. There's quite a variety here. You've got teapots, you've got glasses, there's hinges for doors. And then over in this section, you've got perfumes, deodorant, there's hair dye. And then there's a small gift section, a teddy bear with a rose. It's an amazing little shop. It just shows you how long people have been here and how long perhaps they might have to stay. Maha's mother and sister are both still in the besieged area. She tries to get through to them every couple of days. And what are they saying? يعني كيف الوضع هلا؟ هلا الوضع كتير مأساوي يعني They are sitting in the basement. They don't have connection all the time. They just come up for a bit, uh, send messages, check, and then uh, go down. They're in the basement all the time. Three days, the last three days in a row, all the time in the basement. And they're coming up. For what? They come up when they think it's calm. They prepare some food, gather what they need. They put uh, the phones on the windows so maybe it can uh, connect. And uh, whatever, well, while they're finishing uh, preparing food, and then they grab the phones again and go back to the basement. Another refugee called Samar has a haunted look in his eyes. He tells me he's lost all contact with his mother and his brothers and sisters. So have you been trying them in the in the last week or so? Do you have a number you can try them on? I'm A month ago I tried. It gives me out of service. The number is out of service. It's quite distressing. Uh, what can I say? What can I say? May God help us. That report by the BBC's Martin Patience in Lebanon. South Africa's ruling ANC National Executive Committee has concluded allocation of committees during a special meeting at Irene in Pretoria. The party's headquarters, Lutuli House, will have more members deployed there on a permanent basis. The ANC Secretary-General Esma Khashule says the meeting didn't 
did not discuss the cabinet reshuffle nor the issue of the appointment of the deputy president. His comments came to prove wrong all the speculation that South Africa would see a new cabinet and a new deputy president after this past weekend. Abongile Dumako reports. The ANC's National Executive Committee meeting was initially scheduled for two days but was wrapped up in one day. Amongst the issues discussed and resolved saw Senzo Mkono being part of those who will be deployed to the headquarters of the ANC at Lutuli House in Johannesburg as head of organizing on a full-time basis. While the previous spokesperson of the party, Zizi Godwa, will head up the president's office focusing on monitoring and evaluation. ANC's Secretary-General Ace Mahashule narrowly beat Mkunu in controversial circumstances in the race for the SG position at Nazarek Elective Conference last year. The proposed list was finalized and it was tabled and from now we'll be having full-time ANC comrades at head office. Comrade Pule Mabe is going to be our spokesperson so he is full-time at head office at Lituli. Comrade uh, Senzo Ntonu is going to be full-time as well as Comrade Dakota Lohwede. These comrades are going to act as uh, chair and deputy chair in terms of organizing. They'll be working very close with Secretary General's office. And then Comrade Zizi Koto will be full-time at Lituli in the presidency. Amongst those appointed to head various subcommittees include Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma, will be responsible for education, health, science and technology. Zueli Mkize for constitutional and legal affairs, while Enoch Godongwana retains the subcommittee for economic transformation. And Lindy Wesley Sulu will lead social transformation. Ace Mahashule again. National Elections Committee, Comrade Fijile Mbalola. Political Education will be chaired by Comrade Nati. And Peace and Stability by Comrade Tony Engen. Lindy Wesesolo will be chairing Social Transformation. And Comrade Balega will be chairing Archives Committee. And Comrade Jeff will continue with chairing Policy Monitoring and Evaluation. And the National Disciplinary Committee of Appeal will be chaired by Comrade Noam Vola Mukonyani. The Cultural and Religious Affairs will be chaired by Comrade Matole and Comrade Masuele. Pumoda will be chairing Legislation Governance. While the NEC says the cabinet reshuffle wasn't discussed, it's expected to feature prominently on the top six officials meeting scheduled for Monday. The Secretary General, Ace Mahashule, has also added that former leaders of the party will be roped in to assist with the election campaign in 2019. On the other hand, Naledi Pando didn't feature as any chairperson of the committees, leaving speculation that she might be considered the deputy president of the country. This as David Mabuza is the ANC deputy president and currently premier of Mpumalanga. I am Abongile Dumago in Irene, Pretoria. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. You help and party. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president. Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. 
Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us make Africa the tree of life. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. And the headlines, health authorities in Rebel Health, Syrian enclave of Eastern Ghouta, say several people have suffered symptoms consistent with exposure to chlorine gas during attacks by pro-government forces. Security forces in the Democratic Republic of Congo have shot dead an anti-government protest in the capital, Kinshasa, and presidential elections campaigning kicked off in Egypt this weekend as incumbent President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is expected to score an easy win in the March polls. Those are the stories making headlines. Channel Africa. Kulitra Njoyif Adi Sababa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka. In Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our South Africa's power utility ESCOM says the optimum coal mine that supplies Hendrina Power Station in Pumalanga has informed them that they have commenced with business rescue proceedings. Coal has not been delivered to ESCOM since workers at the mine downed tools last Thursday after the company failed to pay them this month. Parliament's Mineral Resources Portfolio Committee has also expressed grave concern at the latest developments at the coal mine, which is owned by the controversial Gupta family. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by spokesperson at ESCOM, Kulu Pasiwe. Kulu, thank you so much for joining us and a very warm welcome to Africa Razenshan. Good morning to you and to our listeners as well. Thank you. Cool. What's the current status regarding the delivery of coal to the Hendrina power station in Bumalanga? Well, maybe let's start off by contextualizing the supply of coal to that station. So the main supplier, which is uh, Optimum Coal, 
is uh, supplying or is meant to supply 80% of the coal for to, to the power station, the Henrena power station, meaning that 80, uh, sorry, 20%, the remaining 20% is supplied by other players in the market. So currently we don't have the supply of 80%, but 20% is still uh, coming through. And what we are doing as a company to complement the 20%, we also are diverting coal from the nearby power stations into Henrena so that we can continue to have our operations without any uh, hindrances. Now, Kulu, when you say you are diverting um, coal from other power stations, what does that exactly mean? Are you using other companies in the meantime or the companies that you have contracted to also supply that 20% to Hendrina power station to also uh, to the other power stations in the area to also supply um, the 20% uh, to or, or some of the shortfall of the 80% to the Hendrina power station? What exactly is the situation there? So the, the, the suppliers who sort of form part of the 20%, what we have asked them to do is, in addition to their regular output, we have asked them where possible to increase their output, meaning that if someone, for example, was uh, producing and supplying maybe, say, uh, uh, 10,000 uh, tons of coal, if possible, then maybe they can supply up to 15,000, those kind of dynamics. And then what we also are doing is the, the, the other players who are, outside of the Hendrina power station, but uh, fairly close to the station, but supplying other power stations. We are asking them to also uh, uh, send that coal to uh, Hendrina so that we can have uh, the full complement of what we need. In fact, it's not full, but at least, uh, I would say, adequate supply of coal so that we don't run out of coal in that particular power station. Now, this... uh um, Optimum Mine, uh, this is, is part of the controversial Gupta family um, business, one of the businesses that they own. In terms of the issue of state capture, are you able to give us details with regards to what's going to happen with the contract um, if, uh, for instance, now that uh, Optimum is failing to, to supply and they, ha- they have come out and stated that uh, um, one of the reasons is because they have not been paid by ESCOM. Take us through that process and, and how um, this has affected the company on the state capture issue within ESCOM? Well, the, under normal circumstances, this contract that we have with Tegeta or Optimum Coal, because it's Optimum who is supplying us with coal there, is meant to go on up until the end of this uh, calendar year, on the 31st of December, because it was a 40-year contract. Obviously, over a period of time, it was held by Glencoe, and then Glencoe, uh, two years ago, sold the mine to then uh, uh, new owners, which is Erica, who are also now having financial problems. So, but um, from our end, the contract is still valid, and therefore we are expecting them to continue to supply us with coal after they have resolved their uh, issues. Currently, as you correctly mentioned, they are under business uh, rescue, or at least the process will start of uh, uh, them being under business rescue. Whoever the, the, the business rescue practitioners are, I'm sure they will come to us and, and, and say as to how they're going to continue with the supply of coal to the Henrena power station. Because a contract is a contract. If you are unable to fulfill your obligations in terms of the contract, there are certain penalties. And speaking of penalties, ESCOM last month in January has already imposed a, a penalty of uh, 105 million rent to Tegeta because Tegeta or Optimum Coal Mine had failed 
to submit or to supply coal to us as per the agreement. The agreement says they should supply, on average, the, 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 the maximum of uh, 400,000 uh, tons of coal or the minimum of 370,000 tons. And unfortunately for that particular month, they only managed to supply less than 120,000, which is why we, we impose a penalty. And your question, among others, is saying this company is now saying they are battling because we have failed to pay them. They are correct to say that uh, we did not pay them. But uh, what they did not say is why did we not pay them? The reason why we did not pay them is because they, they invoiced us for 52 million rand, and we imposed a penalty of 105 million. So clearly it means that our penalty is higher than what they are invoicing us for. And if we were to pay that 52 million, they would still owe us 53 million anyway. So we said to them, just uh, sort yourself out and then we can talk about other things later. So uh, they are correct to say that uh, we did not pay them. Will South Africans be affected by, um, you know, any disruptions to the Hendrina power station? The Hendrina power station at this stage at least, we do have uh, adequate supply. We also have reserves that we have been building over a period of time. So we have uh, just less than 20 days worth of coal stockpiles there. But in addition to the 20 uh, 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 days of uh, reserves, we are having, I would say, fresh supplies of coal coming through from the 20% that we spoke about earlier, plus the diversions that we are getting from other power stations. It is not an ideal situation, I must say, because uh, ideally the, the main supplier of 80% of, of coal supply should be continuing to give you more so that you can continue to build the reserves. But currently, you are not, get, you are not getting the bulk, which is 80%, which is a, a worry for ESCOM, which is why we are hoping that uh, the new uh, business uh, rescue practitioners will come up with a plan very soon so that we can have uh, assurance that uh, that power station will not be adversely affected by coal shortages there. Now, Kulu, just very quickly in wrapping up, with the new, um, as the company has, uh, has, the mine has said that they are going through a process of uh, business rescue proceedings, with regard to the rescue team, so to speak, if they come into play and take over the business and rescue the business, do they then also take over um, the uh, amounts that are owing to ESCOM by um, Optimum or, or Tegeta? Well, technically, yes, but in most cases, because remember that company would not be the, the new owners. They are just helping out uh, under a very difficult situation. So, But what happens in terms of the law is that we as a company, as ESCOM, would no longer be in a position to impose penalties because once a business is under business rescue, then some of the processes like penalties, you have to freeze them until the process has been completed. So in other words, the 52, the 105 million rent that we have imposed on, on Optimum will have to be frozen or packed until the process has been finalized. But once the process is finalized, obviously, then we can start again and, and claim our money from uh, that company. Is this a genuine uh, business rescue uh, process? Is this a genuine business rescue process? As we all know, um, the company is owned by the controversial Gupta family. Are the proceedings genuine? This one, to be honest with you, is something which is uh, way beyond my pay grade. I hope this is genuine because uh, even the old company that used to own that mine, which is Denko, had made complaints previously about the difficulties of extracting coal from that power from that mine. 
So uh, I assume that uh, the, the new owners, which is Kegeta, are having the same problem in terms of uh, the difficulties of getting coal out of that power state, out of that mine. So to be honest with you, we are hoping that uh, it's something genuine because uh, the other owners had also raised the same concerns before. A developing story that we are all watching with uh, abated breath. Thank you so much for joining us, Kulu, and have a good day. Thank you. That was uh, Kulu Pasiwa, spokesperson of South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, joining us on the line. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. There's still no word on the future of South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority boss Sean Abrams. This after President Sul Ramaphosa announced that the presidency would not continue with the appeal against the judgment that nullified Abrams' appointment, which was brought by former President Jacob Zuma. This means Abrams is now on his own in appealing the judgment on Wednesday. Many have questioned Abrams' credibility as he is also expected to decide whether to reinstate corruption charges against President Zuma that were dropped in 2005. Ntagwa reports. In 2005, then National Prosecuting Authority spokesperson Makosini Nkosi made this announcement. This afternoon, Advocate Pikoli has informed former Deputy President Zuma that uh, we have decided to bring criminal charges against his person. But the matter was subsequently dropped in 2009 ahead of the national elections after Zuma indicated that there was political interference. Some believed that he had nothing to do with the merit of the case. It is for this reason that the DA wants the charges to be reinstated. Now the National Director of Public Prosecutions has to look at the recommendation of a team of prosecutors on the matter that Nkosi announced 13 years ago and make a decision. Nkosi, a former NPA member, says even then the matter was a difficult one. But due to public interest, it must now be concluded. Makosini Nkosi. People would want to see some form of accountability. There, was, there are surveys that have been done, for instance, that indicate that corruption is the number one issue for the people of South Africa. And uh, that they attach corruption. They see President, former President Jacob Zuma as the face of corruption. So there is, there is that appetite in the country for, for him to at least appear in court to face those charges. He had this to say about the issue at the time. In 2003, then National Director of Public Prosecutions, Bulelani Ngoga, decided that he was not going to charge uh, Mr. Zuma, but he was going to charge Shabir Sheikh. Now, with Shabir Sheikh having been found guilty of corruption, which means he was corrupting somebody, and the person who was allegedly corrupted is President Zuma. 13 years on, the NPA is grappling with this issue again, and many believe it will be difficult for Sean Abrams to drop the charges. Ngosi. 
I don't think that um, uh, the NDPP, uh, Mr. Sean Abrams, has any chance. I don't think he has any option uh, but to bring charges against um, uh, the former President Zuma. Because also, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if there were allegations of corruption against him before taking office. And once he was in office, you know, he ran an administration that people perceived to be clean and to be without corruption or state capture. All eyes will be on the Constitutional Court as it is now expected to hear Abrams' arguments as he fights for his job. Until then, he is the man expected to make the decision on former President Jacob Zuma's case. I'm Takwanangatan in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. The South African Federation of Trade Unions, the SAFTU, is planning a massive strike aimed at reversing the 1% value-added tax VAT increase announced by Finance Minister Malusi Kigaba. The largest trade federation, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, wants to ask a parliament not to approve the VAT increase. The unions also weighed in on President Cyril Ramaphosa's announcement that 2018 is the year of job creation. Mercedes Pissent reports. That is expected to increase from 14 to 15 percent from the 1st of April. SAFTU General Secretary Zuelin Zimavavi says unions and workers from all walks of life should unite to reverse the decision which will hit the poor hardest. Vavi says SAFTU will finalize the decision about its planned massive strike when its NEC meets on the 16th of March. South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers says that Pan-African Resources would cut 1,722 jobs at its Evander gold mine in the country's Mpumalanga province. NUM says that the company, which has a total workforce of 1,812 people at the mine, informed the union that the job cuts were due to deteriorating and inadequate infrastructure at the mine, high operating costs such as rising electricity, labor costs and a low gold price. The Pan-African resources could not immediately be reached for comment. Layoffs are a politically sensitive issue in South Africa, where the jobless rate is close to 28%. In a series of meetings with Ugandans living abroad, President Joweri Museveni has pledged a free land and an incentive to lure them 
back to set up industries, especially small-scale factories. According to A.B. Walusimbi, the National Resistant Movement chairperson of the Diaspora Party, Museveni's gesture is not only a timely gesture, but a good move that will endear many Ugandans abroad to invest in their country. Walusimbi said this at a press briefing on Tuesday at the NRM headquarters in Kiatondo Road in Kampala. Importers using Kenya's Mombasa port will now be required to use the standard gauge railway to move their goods as authorities attempt to increase the amount of cargo on the service. In a letter by the Kenya Ports Authority, Kenya Maritime Authority and Kenya Railway Corporation to shipping lines and importers, cargo owners must move a fraction of their cargo to Nairobi and beyond on the SGR and to the inland container depot to promote the two facilities. The freight service, which started operations in December last year, has struggled to find clients despite rock-bottom prices. Initially, Kenya Railways had projected the SGR to attract cargo shippers, but it failed to live up to expectations. And in the first week, the train only hauled freight a couple of times rather than the planned daily runs. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.52 to the South African rand. It's at 9.34 in Botswana and at 9.74 in Zambia. 71 pence to the British pound, 81 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,336, platinum $1,002 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $67.45 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoko for Channel Africa. A sports update up next with Neto Chimani. Thank you, Lulu. A very good morning to all sport fans. Starting off with cricket news. South Africa were masters of their own demise as they slumped to a 2-1 KFC T20 series defeat to India with dropped catches and poor fielding a serious concern for coach Otis Gibson. The Proteas lost by seven runs in the third and final T20 at the PPC Newlands in Cape Town on Saturday night as India reaffirmed their dominance in white ball cricket following up their 5-1 ODI series victory. Gibson says he was not pleased with his charges fielding on the night. Um, tonight I wasn't, no, I think, look at the game tonight, we lost by four runs and the difference tonight would have been fielding, you know, I think drop catches, sort of individual errors in the field, fumbles, would have cost us the game tonight. Um, other than that, I thought it was a very good game. Despite poor performances in the limited overs games, the 48-year-old believes that there is still a lot of positives to take from the last couple of games. The former West Indies fast bowler and coach Gibson says he is happy with the integration of young stars and new players into the Proteus team since his arrival. 
I guess we set out at the start of the, my time here to see new players, and I think that we've seen some exciting new players in the one-day series. Lungi Ngidi made a debut, Henrik Klaassen made a debut, and Henrik Klaassen's been excellent, I think. Junior Dale in this T20 series was also very good. And we saw a little bit of Christian Jumper tonight, and he also played an outstanding inning, so I guess losing is never easy to take. But... You know, when you're missing so many of your seniors and then some new people come in and put their names forward, then the result of the series is hard to take, but then you, look, you obviously have to look forward to the future, and the future with some of the youngsters seems like it's going to be a bright one. Swimming South Africa President Alan Fritz says he's happy with preparations for the upcoming 2018 Commonwealth Games to be held on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia between the 4th and the 15th of April, but believes they could have done more if it wasn't for lack of funding. Fritz says due to limited funds, they were unable to send swimmers to several international swimming competitions, which he believes could have enhanced their preparations for the Games. He is, however, confident that despite the challenges, SA swimmers won't disappoint. You know, swimming has progressed in, on the world stage very, very fast. If you see the times at the last World Champs, uh, we are lagging behind. There's two reasons for that. One is swimming has got no sponsors, so we are unable to send our swimmers to compete throughout the year on the world stage against the best of the best. It does hamper our strategy a bit. The second one is that um, we, we are sort of behind the European summer. We, we are going into our summer now, and um, so we are sure of at least three or four medals from the Commonwealth. We have received very good selection from SESCOC. I mean, there's a contingent of 23 swimmers going, and we certainly don't want to disappoint the nation. Swimming South Africa is sending a 23-member contingent of swimmers to the Games, which is made up of the likes of the 50 meters and 100 meters butterfly Commonwealth record holder, Chad Letlaw, and breaststroke specialist Chachana Schoenmaker, among others. Fritz says funds from Saskoc's Operation Excellence OPEX program, which funds athletes who have the potential to qualify and return medals from major events, is just not enough. The OPEX program of, of SESCO uh, supports the elite swimmer. We are engaging SESCO uh, to talk about the second tier because it's the second tier that should be coming through and producing on the world stage. And uh, SESCO is quite amenable to that. Our engagement with lotteries is um, also to support the second tier swimmer because uh, the lotteries has changed its policy somewhat and uh, we don't get the funds that we used to get. But we, unfortunately, we can't close our doors. The sport must go on. And with the, the least that we have, we, we're going to make the best. But we are hopeful. Our swimmers are extremely talented and they can compete anywhere in the world. Our coaches are extremely talented coaches and they can prepare our swimmers. What we do need is a little bit of capital injection to ensure that we push our swimmers to compete all over the world to prepare them for world events. If you drag your feet, you won't have a footprint. Stay tuned on Channel Africa. More sports news in the next hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories, an Africa rise in Shan at the Sawa donors pledge 500 million US dollars for troops in Africa's Sahel region. And North Korea condemns late US sanctions. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzura Magaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Casper Njovist featuring Hua Pili with a song title, Destiny. Like I do, do you think that he will risk it all for you like I do? When you get on your knees and change your title, in simple terms, do you think that you would wife you? And maybe this is coming from my wrongs. I know I broke a lot of women's hearts before. I really thought that we would prove my niggas wrong, but they not. So we love and we learn. I used to think. You are, you
good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. In the headline.